Good morning, everybody. It's great to see you all here today. I, uh, Pastor Mark gave me the nod to participate in the series in Romans that he's been leading us through. I at first thought perhaps the subject matter of today's passage was more than he felt he could personally handle, so he had to call in the big guns. That's what I thought at first. And then I realized there's a football game at 9.30. <laughs> but I'm joking. He was sitting here down front in the last hour. And uh, truth is, he gave me a couple of different dates. I chose the one that worked best for me. I appreciate you being here. I realize you had other options. But that's why they invented the DVR. So we're going to go ahead with our study in the scripture today. It's going to be found in Romans chapter 6, the first 11 verses. You can easily find that on page 914 in the Pew Bible. If you'd like to look at it, I invite you to follow along silently. I'll read it out loud. Romans 6, 1 through 11. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Join me in prayer. God, I thank you for the truth of the scripture and the chance to build our lives upon it, for the truth it contains about who we are and who you are and how you love us and care for us and eagerly desire that we live life in connection with you. God, we look today at this, this amazing, powerful truth about what it means to live a new kind of life, a life that's connected to you, that Christ has made available to us. And I'm asking God that everything that is true from you would, would, would lodge itself in our hearts and minds and everything else would fall away, that we might go from here empowered to live a new kind of life. 
in your strength and by your spirit, I make this prayer in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. The words of my counselor ring true, uh, ring clearly in my mind still. Don, your biggest battle is not the battle with those around you, but the battle inside you. Will you live according to the old nature or learn to live the life of Christ in you? And with those words, Pastor Ralph, the E.F. Hutton of Fellowship Community Church, the one who speaks and the rest of us listen, he set me on track to understand my struggle with anger and with resentment. Can you relate to any struggles like that? Some other besetting sin, perhaps, a habit, a hang-up, something that always seems to trip you up over which you never seem to be able to gain the victory? If so, you've probably wrestled more than once with questions like these. Did, did, did God forgive me of sin and save me just so I could continue what feels like a losing battle against sin and this ongoing struggle? Is this really the abundant life that Christ promised? How can I get victory? And if you can relate to that, I want you this morning to give your full attention to the passage that we've just read, Romans 6, 1 through 11, in which Paul lays out for us the foundation on which God has made it possible for us to walk in newness of life, how we can live a new life. That's what's promised at the end of verse 4 when he says that, so that we too may live a new life. And what we're going to see is, this is not just a new position as a child of God, but a total new trajectory toward a life of holiness and victory through Christ. Now, Romans 6 presents a transition in the book of Romans. In chapters 1 through 5, Paul has laid out for us the important truths of our justification by faith. That is a righteous standing that we have with God on the basis of Christ, on the merits of Christ, and it's applied to our account by faith alone, sola fide. And in chapter 6, Paul begins to show that that work of Christ and our righteous standing by faith has an experiential side as well, bringing us life on a whole new level, a life of victory, a life of power, a life of freedom, a new kind of life. As it says in verse 4, as the New American Standard Bible says, newness of life. I want to experience that, and I want to find out how. And that's our, our job this morning. In today's text, Paul urges his readers to understand their new identity in Christ and to embrace its power. Christ's work on the cross provided not just freedom from sin's penalty but also freedom from its power to enslave and destroy us. So the first thing he calls us to understand is what I'm going to call the inevitability of a transformed life. Inevitability of a transformed life for those who are in Christ. He addresses the inevitability of a transformed life with a couple of rhetorical questions that start this chapter. He anticipates the question on behalf of his readers that flows out of what he's already talked about in the previous chapters. Essentially, the question is this. If sin gives God the opportunity to show grace and forgiveness, then shouldn't we just keep sinning so that God can keep showing grace and forgiveness? 
But the thought of anyone tasting the beauty of forgiveness and grace and then continuing in a life of sin, it, it, it makes Paul want to spit. God forbid, he says, may it never be, by no means. The two ideas are incongruous. And so he answers that question with another question. He says, we are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is obvious, we can't. And he's going to go on to explain that it is the believer's union with Christ that means a transformed life, a life of holiness, a life of victory over sin is inevitable for those who are in Christ. Now, the basis of our transformed life is our union with Christ. Now, here we have a very important New Testament doctrinal teaching called the, our, the believer's union with Christ. So, I got it. We've got to understand this, and I've got to spend some time teaching this to you, and so I need you to put on your seatbelt and hang with me through this discussion, but I promise you that as we begin to understand it, its implications for our life in the present and its relevance to all of our struggles are going to become clear. So are you ready to hang with me on this? The believer's union with Christ it's an essential and fundamental Christian doctrine, but it's kind of nebulous. What does that mean? It's hard to understand. It feels mysterious. When we understand what this means, that the believer is united with Christ, we'll understand why a transformed life is inevitable for us. Paul speaks in Romans and other of his writings about this union with Christ, always in connection with little words, little prepositions like in and into and with. We saw several of them in the text that we just read. Look at them again. Baptized into Christ Jesus. Buried with him. United with him in his death. United with him in his resurrection. Crucified with him. Paul uses it, this expression um, in other of his writings. Galatians 2.20, he says, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. First, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, he says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Millard Erickson in his Christian theology says, the believer's union with Christ is expressed in terms of Christ being in the believer and the believer being in Christ. It becomes apparent that all that the believer has spiritually is based upon Christ being within our hope of glory is in Christ. Our spiritual vitality is drawn from his indwelling presence. But what does it all mean? Paul calls it a mystery. Understanding it fully may not be completely realistic, but nonetheless, I think there are things we can understand about our union with Christ. And here's the first thing. Our union with Christ is judicial in nature. We've seen this already in the first five chapters of Romans. Because the believer is united with Christ, we share in Christ's righteous standing before God. What that means is God does not look upon us and say, well, Christ is righteous, but Don is a sinner. Rather, he sees the two as one. So Don is declared righteous on the merits of Christ. I'm united with Christ. This is a judicial positional union. A second element of our union with Christ is that it is a spiritual union. It's not physical bonding as in two met metals being 
welded together in which both pieces become one and then lose their individuality. It's, it's rather a union of two spirits which does not extinguish either of them. The believer's union with Christ doesn't make him or her uh, more intelligent, physically stronger, but it brings him or her to life spiritually, spiritually alive. It's a spiritual union. But the third element of our union with Christ, and I think this is the one that Paul is focusing on in this passage, is that our union with Christ is vital, life-giving, and spiritually empowering. He's focusing in this passage on the power that is ours because we are united with Christ. His life flows into ours, renewing our inner nature and imparting spiritual strength. Jesus himself used this analogy when he says, I'm the vine and you are the branches. We know the branch has no life in itself except in union with the vine. And of course, when, the, when united with the vine, that branch will bear fruit. Which brings us back to where we started, the inevitability of a transformed life. That newness of life is founded upon our union with Christ. Are you with me? I need you to hang with me for one more important concept. You probably noticed it. It's spiritual baptism. Paul talks about baptism in these verses. In verses 3 through 4, our union with Christ, we learn, is brought about by a spiritual baptism. Listen to it again. Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. This new life comes about through a spiritual baptism. But when Paul mentions baptism, he is not primarily talking about water baptism. And I don't think he has in mind a setting like this with a platform and a baptismal tank recessed into the floor. He's not primarily thinking about water baptism. He's speaking primarily of a spiritual baptism of which water baptism, baptism is a symbol or a picture. John the Baptist had said this. He said, I baptize with water, but after me is coming one, speaking of Christ, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Water baptism does not bring to pass or bring about our union with Christ. Spirit baptism does. Water baptism, such as we practice here, celebrates that union, that spiritual. It, it, it visualizes, it symbolizes it, it confirms it, it celebrates it, but it doesn't bring it about. It proclaims and celebrates that spirit baptism has already occurred in a believer's life. So Paul says that through spirit baptism, the believer is united with Christ in death. Water baptism going under pictures that. And is united with Christ in his resurrection. And coming out of the water is a visual of that reality too. But it's a spiritual baptism that brings about our union with Christ. And water baptism will celebrate and symbolize that. So when you are by faith born again, a spirit baptism takes place that unites you to Christ, whether or not you've ever been in the waters of baptism. The water baptism for you will symbolize and celebrate that. And this union with Christ through spiritual baptism 
includes, among other things, the inevitability of a transformed life. That we too, he says, may live a new life. Donald Gray Barnhouse, theologian and minister, pastor, lived in Philadelphia, served in Philadelphia until his death in 1960. He wrote this about our union with Christ. He says, the practical outworking of the Christian life must be built solidly on the doctrine of our complete union with Christ. As a result of this union, we are not to continue in the state of bondage to sin, but rather our justification by faith, our righteous standing before God on the merits of Christ is the means to a greater end, holiness of life. And he goes on to use this illustration. He says, the purpose of grapes on the vine is not to prove that the vine is alive, though it does. The vine is alive, and the purpose of the vine being alive is that fruit may be produced and that the grapes may be enjoyed. Likewise, he says, the purpose of justification, being declared righteous, is sanctification, living righteous a life transformed to become an increasingly more like Christ. A life of holiness will become the enjoyable fruit of those who have been declared righteous by faith in Christ. So Paul tells it, he says it's unthinkable that those who are now dead to sin because of their union with Christ should live in it any longer. Life change becomes the inevitable result of our union with Christ. Are you following me so far? In Alpha, in the Alpha course, we use a story, a testimony a guy shares about the changes that came about in his life when he was born again. It's about a four-minute video, and I want you to focus your attention on the screen and watch this video. So I'm often asked, why did you get involved with crime? And I say it wasn't a conscious decision. I didn't see the careers lady at school and say, of course, you can do an armed robbery. It was just there. It was all around us. And it all started with weed and drinking, cannabis, the usual stuff. Um, we used to steal badges off expensive cars and swap them up like trading cards. And it just progressed to the entire car. And I got involved with the people who were really pulling all the strings. So we went up to this guy's house who owed them a few hundred pounds. It was, it was nothing to them. But the problem was he'd been going around telling everybody that he wasn't going to pay it. So they had to set an example. So they got this guy, he was in his garden, his little lad was there. So he got out of the car, grabbed this bloke, put him in the car, sat between us, and he drove up to uh, what's called Niner's Quarry and uh, pulled a petrol strimmer out of the boot of the car, gave it to me and said, do his feet. So strimmed his feet, just lacerated his feet. And this was my initiation. So that just moved on and on and on. Cut a long story short, Leeds Crown Court, courtroom number three, he handed me down seven and a half years. And I just thought to myself, that's it, gloves are off. If I'm gonna be bad, I'm gonna be the best kind of bad I can possibly be. Because I got moved from prison to prison to prison, put on category A, maximum security, because of my behavior. And there's this lad coming round, another inmate, he comes up to me and he says, uh, do you wanna go on an alpha course? I had no idea what he was talking about. I said, look, get out my face, sunshine, before I slap you. I thought no more of it. And next day, and then this kid's coming round with this clipboard again. So I'm just waiting for this kid to get within slapping range and he must have sensed something wasn't right because he blurted something out really quickly. He went, you get Wednesday afternoon at a bang up and you get free coffee and you get free biscuits. <gasps> All right, I'll see you on Wednesday. And we just started giving a hard time, a really hard time. The thing that stopped me, it wasn't what they said because I wasn't really listening, but it was how they did it. 
They came back at me with love and compassion every single time. So I sat there on my bunk and I said the first real prayer I'd ever said in my life. I didn't know if I was doing it right or not. But the gist of it was, God, I need you to take away the anger, the violence, the hate. I need you to take away the addictions, which I've tried to fight and I just lose every time. And if you do that for me, I will live the rest of my life for you. But the next morning, I woke up as I always had done. Rolled over to grab the smoke as I always had done, but I couldn't touch it. Everything about it, the look, the thought, the smell, everything made me want to be sick. And I knew what I had to do, so I went and got my little stash and I put it straight out the cell window. And as soon as they'd gone, I started to feel a bit better. I started to calm down a little bit, but I was still freaking out. So I just said to myself, Daryl, calm down, go get a wash, go get a shave. And as I started to get a wash, I looked in the mirror and just stopped dead. Because I didn't recognise my own reflection. I was like, that guy's smiling. Not just smiling, that guy's beaming. And I noticed I didn't just look different, I felt different. Everything had gone. It was as if someone had unscrewed the top of my head and just poured freezing cold water in and everything had been just washed out clean. So the chaplain comes onto the wing and I just told him absolutely everything. And he said, the man that went to bed last night is not the same man that's standing here this morning. You're a new creation. And that was it. I said, no more. No more fighting, no more drugs, no more nothing. If you owe me anything, forget it. If you're holding anything of mine, keep it. I don't want it, I'm done, I'm finished. Jesus has saved me. And then when it came time for my release, I knew I was gonna go into full-time ministry. Reverend Mark Finch, JP, a magistrate, and he said, would you consider coming to Runcorn near Liverpool? We've got a new church plant, we're just getting going. There's a big problem with young people and gangs and drugs, would you come? I knew it was the right place to go. So he picked me up from the gates on the morning of my release. He took me to his house, not a house, his home. And his eldest is his daughter, Rebecca, who is now my wife and the mother to my two amazing children, Benjamin and Lydia Grace. My life just couldn't look more different than what it is now. Daryl didn't use the phrases union with Christ or spirit baptism, but he said, Jesus saved me. And then the changes were inevitable and obvious, almost palpable. He could see in his reflection. He could feel inside that something was different. No doubt there were other changes that would come about over time as more of a process, but there is no doubt that the fruit of a transformed life was evident in him. And this is what our union with Christ brings about in our lives, transformation to newness in life because of our union with Christ, is, it's inevitable. Now, as I promised, I want us to think about some of the implications of this great truth, some of the practical implications of our union with Christ. The biggest implication, of course, is that we're now living a new life. But then Paul breaks it down even further for us in, in verses 5 through 7. Would you look at them again? He says, for if we've been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection life like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Here's what we see. The first thing we see is that our relationship with sin has fundamentally changed. 
Do you see these phrases that Paul uses? Old self crucified. No longer slaves. The body ruled by sin has been done away with. Set free from sin. A relationship with sin is fundamentally changed. Now, each of those phrases deserves detailed examination, but essentially what Paul is announcing is that the believer has been delivered from sin's penalty, of course, but also from its power to dominate our lives. For the believer, the one who's been united with Christ through spiritual baptism, the sin nature which we all inherited, all of us from the first Adam, discussed in the previous chapter, will no longer be permitted to be the dominating force controlling our lives. A new way of life, dominated by the Spirit of Christ living in us, will be the new paradigm. Someone has put it this way, a life of obedience to God instead of a life of slavery to sin is the new normal for the Christian. I want to experience this new normal, don't you? I like the way the Living Bible paraphrases Paul's question in verse 2. Should we keep on sinning when we don't have to? The other implication is not simply do we have, as our relationship with sin fundamentally changed, but secondly, we're empowered by the indwelling Spirit of Christ. You know, see, he says you've been set free from sin. Well, being set free from something implies being set free for something, something new, something different. And Paul will go on to describe this in verse 11 as our being alive to God. Now, Paul's going to spend the next two chapters fleshing out the beauty of this truth. But if you want, you can take a sneak peek by jumping ahead to chapter 8 and looking at verse 9. You, however, are not under the control of the human nature, but under the control of the Spirit, since God's Spirit lives in you. This is our new normal. Galatians Galatians chapter 5, also from Paul, gives us more information on what this indwelling spirit will produce in our lives. This is the fruit of that spirit in us, is love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, kindness, goodness, self-control. This is our new normal. It's a new paradigm for our lives. Life on a new plane, newness of life, and I want that to be increasingly true for me. Don't you? So let's talk about how to go about living this new kind of life that Christ has provided for us through our union with him. And I want to call this the importance of personalizing this new life in Christ, the importance of personalizing it. In other words, Paul calls us to embrace this reality and make it our own. He says, don't let this just be theoretical. He's telling us to arm ourselves with this new paradigm, this new reality as we confront our struggles with sin. And so verse 11 sort of serves as a conclusion to the first 10 verses of the chapter, a conclusion statement, and it's got the only imperative in the text. The only command shows up here in these words. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. In the same way, verse 11 begins. Or even so, or so, so, 
In the same way, it's tying it back to what Paul just mentioned in verses 8 through 10, which speak of Christ and, that what, of true, and, and, and what is true of Christ, that he was raised from the dead that he cannot die again, that death no longer has mastery over him, and that he lives to God. And Paul's point in verse 11 is to tell us this, if you believe that to be true of Christ, believe it also to be true of you. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. He's saying if you believe that Christ has conquered death and that no sin has a claim, and that sin no longer has a claim on him, then believe just as confidently that you are dead to sin and it no longer has the claim on you. If you believe that death no longer has power over him, then just as confidently you're to believe that it no longer has power over you. If you believe that Christ has been raised from the dead and is alive to God, then believe just as confidently that you have been raised from the dead and are alive to God. If A is true, then B is true, because you are united with Christ. You see now why our union with Christ is so essential? It is the source of our power for life. Now, I think sometimes, and I say this sadly, we who profess faith in Christ believe that Christ has been freed from the power of sin and death, but we don't believe that we have. We see ourselves as forgiven, yes, but we're sort of resolved that we're just kind of doomed to eke out a life of hopeless struggle against habits and hang-ups and besetting sins, and we're trying our best and hoping to hang on long enough to get through life and move on to heaven. And no doubt, heaven is the ultimate freedom, the ultimate aim, the ultimate goal. But Paul is announcing in this passage, he's talking about the present, that the degree to which Jesus is alive to God now, so are all those who through faith are united with Christ. Now, he's not suggesting that any of us are going to attain in this life some state of spiritual, sinless perfection. He's going to be honest in the next chapter about his own struggle, saying, the good that I want to do, I can't do it. And reality is telling us that that struggle is real. But he's saying that union with Christ brings about a newness of life, a life of victory, a life on a whole new plane. Now, listen very closely to me. I believe that this means for you and for me that if we arm ourselves with this truth, then there is no struggle, no temptation or battle against sin that you and I are doomed to lose. There's no failure, there's no habit, there's no hang-up, there's no sin over which I cannot, through Christ, gain the victory. Count yourself dead to sin, alive to God. Now, this word count, that's a numbers word, right? And Paul has used it earlier in Romans chapter 4, verse 3, when he's quoting Isaiah 53 and applying it to Christ. It says, he was numbered, counted with transgressors. He became sin for us, is another way to say it. He was counted among transgressors. And now he's using that same numbers word in a command form for you and me. Number yourselves. Count yourselves among those who are dead to sin, but alive to God. And I'm, 
And I'm struck by the truth that Christ was willing to be counted among transgressors, dying in our place, so that you and I could be counted among those who are alive to God and who walk in newness of life. Not just forgiven life, awesome as that is, not just declared righteous positionally, awesome that is, as that is, but empowered to live a life on a new plane. Have you personalized this truth for yourself? Are you willing to arm yourself with this truth and personalize it in the area of your struggle and whatever thing, sins you might be dealing with? What Paul is saying is that the new reality and all its implications are nice, but the newness of life will be experienced as we arm ourselves with them and carry them with us as we do life and confront our struggles and sins. You must make them your own. You must personalize these truths. It's not just that believers are dead to sin. I am dead to sin. It's not just that Christ indwells believers. He indwells me. It's not just that newness of life is available. Newness of life is mine. Well, doesn't that sound just like positive thinking? Yes, I'm positive that if you think this way, it will become true for you because Christ says it so. So I want to give you some suggestions on how you can arm yourselves with these truths and count yourself dead to sin but alive to God. I want to give you some ways you can begin to experience the, the, this new kind of life, to embrace this new identity, to experience its power. Just some simple things. Here's the first suggestion. Speak truth to yourself. And this is the truth that we've been looking at. What God says is true of you, that you are united with Christ and that His Spirit lives in you. You speak truth to yourself in your situation, we're good at lying to ourselves. Someone may say, oh, well, you know, this is just who I am. I've always had a bad temper or fill in the blank with whatever your struggle or weakness or character flaw may be. I've always been this way. I guess I always will. Well, it may be that your character flaws are, have been uh, cemented in your life through years of practicing them. But Paul says, the old self was crucified with Christ that the body of sin might be done away with, that we might walk in newness of life. Which are you going to believe? I'll always be this way? Or that you're going to walk in newness of life? Speak truth to ourselves. There was one lady, and I remember she had a sort of biting and critical tongue and say offensive things, and then she would justify herself by saying something like this. Oh, I'm from Brooklyn, and we're all like that there. I don't know, is that true of people from Brooklyn? Now, it may be that your background, your upbringing, your geography, your heredity, generational sins, and I'm going to confess to you, I don't know how it all works together, how it all comes together to play a part in, in our own unique struggles. I don't know how that all works but the gospel of Christ says that sin doesn't get the final say in your life. The gospel proclaims that Jesus was willing to be counted among transgressors so that you could be counted among those who are alive to God in Christ Jesus. It's a lie to say that the work of Christ was good enough to forgive me, but not good enough to change me. We speak truth to ourselves. It's powerful. It's God's truth. A related suggestion is speak truth to your struggle and sin. You tell it, I'm dead to you. Now, that may sound really weird to talk to a struggle or a sin or a temptation. 
But I think this is part of speaking truth to ourselves. So when you're faced with a struggle, a temptation, a recurring battle, you pause and you remind yourself by addressing the situation, I'm dead to you, I don't have to obey you, my old self has died, the power of Christ living in me gives me another option, I have the power of his indwelling spirit, I'm united with Christ, there's a whole new level of life for me, there's a whole new paradigm, and that option to live by the spirit's power moves us towards peace and love and kindness and self-control. And really, that just brings us back to Pastor Ralph's words. Will you live by the old nature or by the power of Christ in you? We can choose to live by the power of Christ. Third suggestion, give Christ access to every area of your life. Let Christ move in to the places that you've kept off limits to him. Your union with Christ will not bring about changes to any area that you keep off limits to his influence and power. And very often it's not that we cannot gain victory over a particular struggle, it's that we don't want to give up whatever it is that we feel that sin provides for us. Is it power or control or an escape? Sin always has some kind of camouflaged benefit that we feel we can't give up. And it may very well be that we simply don't want to let Christ be Lord over that particular area of our hearts or lives. And we won't experience victory there because we simply haven't surrendered that part of our life to Christ. There's, there's an interesting verse in Revelations chapter 3 that in which Christ is addressing believers who are keeping him at arm's length. Can you imagine? Now, you've heard this verse before. I'll quote it for you. It's Christ. He says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone will open the door and let me in, I will come in, and I will dine with him and he with me. And we often hear this verse in the conjunction of calling people to make their initial surrender to Jesus Christ to accept them into their life, and that's awesome. But you have to look at the context and realize that Christ is talking to one of his churches to people who are already claiming to have a relationship with him, and yet he's telling them, I'm outside knocking because there are parts of your life that you are keeping off limits to me. Do you have any areas of your life that when you're completely honest, you just don't want Christ to come in? You can experience his power in your life as you surrender those to him. Here's the fourth suggestion. Gain strength from others. For whatever reason, God has decided that victory in the Christian life is going to happen in connection with other believers, in connection with community. Isolation and secrecy are key elements of defeat in any struggle. It's when those, those secrets lose their power when they're brought into the open, brought into the light. Now, that doesn't mean we go on... Uh, we go posting all the details of our struggles on Facegram and Instabook <laughs> or wherever you like to vent. But it does mean taking one or two trusted people into your life who can lovingly affirm the truth to you and help push you in good and godly directions. Do you have anybody like that in your life? There's so much in the New Testament that talks about victory over sin requiring a team approach. Confess your sins one to another and pray for each other so that you might be healed. And I believe that the power of Christ is unlocked in our lives when we reject isolation and we get help from the community of believers. I got a small group of guys with whom it's a pleasure to meet at an insanely early hour on Friday mornings. 
It's a men's group. We call it team, teaching, equipping, affirming men. I, I say to those guys, you think I'm here because this is my job. I tell them I'm here because being with you guys is life to me. And I have a small group, and I can tell them what's going on in my heart and life. And I feel with them that I am really, truly being human. And I don't have to put up a front. And they encourage me. They pray for me. I, I truly gain life from that connection. You have any connections like that? Gain strength from others. Here's the last suggestion. Celebrate victories and never give up. If you belong to Christ, if you've been spiritually baptized and united with Christ, been born again, then you know what? Your life indeed has changed. You have experienced growth. You're not the same person that you were. But here's what happens. Sometimes our struggles with sin or areas of defeat or maybe the enemy, Satan himself, tries to convince us that we're completely out of it. You're a phony. You're a fake. This isn't working. There's no hope for you. Give up. But that is not true. Truth is that we are alive. Our lives have been changed. And you need to celebrate those victories and recognize them. I was speaking to a friend of mine a while back. And I was kind of struggling in the area of feeling like a failure in the area of parenting. I don't even remember what it was at the time that I was wrestling with. But the whole thing just felt like a weight of failure on me. And my friend said to me, and it was, so, it was so simple and so down to earth, he said, Don, you're not getting everything wrong. <laughs> you're getting some things right. But see, in that moment, it felt like I was getting everything wrong. And maybe you feel like that too as you're confronting a sin or a struggle. It keeps plaguing you and you think, and it's not, and you're not, but you've got to celebrate the victory that Christ is alive in you, that he's changing you, that you are making progress. That's another thing a network of supporters and friends can do for you is to encourage you in the progress and growth that you have made, keep you from throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Never give up. We have the promise, which also comes from the pen of Paul. He says, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it in you. Never give up. Nelson Mandela said, the greatest glory in living is not in falling, but in rising every time we fall. You've been hearing me today, and you, there's, you could be a person here today, and, and as you've listened to, listened to this today, you said, the only thing I can relate with, Don, that you've talked about is struggle. That's it. I don't know what union with Christ is. I don't know what spiritual baptism. I don't know what indwelling spirit means. But I do know struggle and defeat. I'm certainly not living in victory. Your life with God and your life filled with his spirit and the spirit's power begins when you are born again spiritually. That's the first step for you. It's the first step for all of us when we surrender to God and repent of our sin and receive his forgiveness, and he comes in and brings us alive. And the journey begins, and it stretches into eternity. And if you've never experienced that, then you're not experiencing the purpose for which God put you on the earth, that he might know you and that you might know him. And that's when you come to live life that is truly life. 
And if you've not experienced that, I want to pray for you. And I want you to reach out to me if you're willing to do that so that I can help you take that step, that initial step of faith in Christ, which is going to start this whole thing going for you. There's another group of people that I want to address this morning as we close, and, and, and that's those who are feeling so defeated and so discouraged that everything I've said today sounds nice, but for you it's just so purely theoretical, and you don't see any way that you can ever experience it. I'm going to pray for you too, that you will learn to count yourself, as God says, you are dead to sin and alive to Christ that you'll start working these steps where that reality can become crystal clear in your head and your heart, and you'll begin to live life in this new paradigm. Let's pray together. I thank you, God, for the truth of your word. I thank you, Jesus, that you do live within I thank you for the way that you've changed our lives. And I pray for those who have never taken that first step of walking with you and knowing you and experiencing the life that you provide, that they would come to faith in you today. And I pray for those who are supremely discouraged because these truths just feel so out of reach. Send someone into their life to speak truth and encouragement today, this week. May they taste victory and celebrate it. May they look into the mirror as the guy in the video did and realize what's true, that they're new, that they're alive, alive to you, that you live within. And I make these prayers on behalf of myself and these dear friends in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. Have a great day, everybody. Thanks so much for being here today.